Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Maybe you have tuned in for every episode thus far. Maybe this is the first time you've ever tuned in to That's Truth, or maybe it's the first time you've ever tuned in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Welcome, and we are thankful that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to listen to this live interactive call-in program. I'm Nathan Owens, sitting across the desk from me in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, as you is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home. Pastor, we have a number of questions that have come in since last week's episode, so we'll touch base with those, and then we will jump into our new topic this evening of Scientology as we continue to discuss some different cults that have not been discussed thus far on the program. Uh, Pastor, if you recall last week, uh, Brother Williams called in with a question about the video that he had sent where a couple had been married for 10 years and they have two children and now they just recently found out that they are brother and sister. What are your, I know it, you gave some brief yeah. thoughts last night or last week. Would you like to give any more thoughts? Yeah, I, I listened to the video. Last time I didn't get to look at this, listen to the video, but this time I, I paid some attention to it. Um, a few things that kind of came to my mind when I, when I viewed it. Uh, number one, I think there's a real tragedy. But the other part of it is how could something like this have happened? Um, I think the, in the video they said that they um, were dating for a year before um, in terms of when they were married and, and how long they've known each other. So my problem is this, is how have you not explored family backgrounds if you're dating for so long? I mean, have you not met her family? Would you not have met uh, his family? Those are details that I think when you're going into a relationship that is going to be permanent, it's important to get to know family members. So that kind of bothers me a little bit that I hope this person didn't just meet and, you know, kept this thing quite close to the to the chest, or had a hasty marriage, et cetera, et cetera, and now uh, after all these years getting to know family members. So it's actually the reverse of how this thing was supposed to be done. And I think it's a warning to people who are going to engage in such nefarious marriages to uh, actually be more open and get to know about the different family members and details about families. Uh, you know, pre- uh, premarital dating um, is a crucial time in a person's life. 
And I think a lot of people waste that premarital dating and it becomes, as I said on another program, it becomes quite a physical relationship. Consequently, they don't spend enough time exploring what really would make the marriage successful, discussing roles and finances and communication and problem solving and other uh, marital issues. So I I just thought that, um, to my mind, it was an eye-opener that a person would have known a person for so long and would not have known the person's family background. But again, uh, it alerts us today that more than ever, we ought to be very, very careful uh, when we are going into a marriage situation that we are not lackadaisical in trying to find out details about the background of the family, lest something like this will happen to us. I mentioned last time that there are sperm banks in America and I suppose other parts of the world uh, where people can actually get certain types of sperms, sometimes from doctors, from lawyers, um, important people. Of course, there's a cost to it, and then you can become impregnated using those sperms. Uh, I am told that in many, many cases, the people uh, don't know exactly whose sperm it was, basically, and that becomes difficult. You can see that years later, after you've had all of these people being born, you can see there's a cross-fertilization of people in terms of, of dating each other and marrying each other uh, without having that kind of background. So I think we're, we're really headed to a difficult time in the future if we continue to manipulate uh, the, these matters. And it doesn't argue well for m- many couples. But because of that, I think more precaution ought to be taken now um, when it comes to this whole matter of marriage to really get some background to those people uh, to families, uh, members of that, pe- those people who are getting married. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 737. It is a live interactive call-in program called That's Truth. If you have a question, you can call one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to one 1454 this is a safe place for you to answer your, ask your questions. We're not here to insult, to make fun of. We are here to hear your question and answer it from the Bible, our source of unchanging truth. Pastor, will there ever be a time when the Bible will be outdated? Or maybe it's already reached that point. Mm-hmm. Well, if it is God's Word and um, it is already settled in heaven, uh, as far as humankind is concerned, uh, the Bible can never be outdated because it's designed to help man in his uh, process of salvation and his growth in spirituality until he becomes formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And uh, so it, there'll never be an outdated book. However, God dealing with humanity is uh, is quite different than he dealt with humanity at the beginning. He, he dealt them on the economy of law. Now he's dealing with the economy of grace. But there are certain principles that carry over from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that are relevant uh, to man and, and, and man's lifestyle. So we will always have a relevant book uh, called the Word of God because it is God's Word. It's like God's character. It's unchangeable. And remember that Christianity has basically to do with spiritual matters and moral issues and ethical issues. And those issues very seldom do they ever change. It's still wrong to murder. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to commit acts of homosexuality. It's still wrong to steal. And those are the core principles that you find in Scripture. And uh, those will never change because they're based on God's character. 
Pastor, we have a question that has come in in relation to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. The listener says, These verses tell of Jesus' encounter with a demon-possessed child and his father. The boy's father seemed to have been in a desperate state where Jesus was the only hope, but somehow he still struggled with unbelief. In verse 24, the father says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. After this, his disciples asked why they could not drive out the demons, to which Christ answered in verse 29, saying, Only prayer would have worked. Is it that Jesus prayed to God the Father without anyone realizing it? Or would it be safe to think that the man's pleadings to Christ, being fully God, was counted as the prayer? Because Christ, in many instances, lifted up his voice to God the Father. And in this passage, that's not recorded. I was just curious about what particular time this prayer was done. Thanks in advance for asking or answering. Well, uh, the particular incident is also alluded to in the book of Luke chapter 9. Uh, we don't want to turn there. But um, two things. Uh, one is that he didn't say that it was only prayer that will cast out the demon. He added prayer and fasting. So those are two elements that are involved in this specific case. You notice that when our Lord asked the gentleman, how long has this thing been um, affecting your child? And he said from the time he was a child. So this is a, a, a demon that has lodged into this child from a very early age. And there's a massive stronghold uh, in this child's life. So this is something that started very early and continued for many, many, many years. A demon that has uh, have that kind of a lodging within uh, an individual is very, very reluctant to uh, to leave. And our Lord pointed that out very clearly because when the gentleman brought the, the, the child to the disciples, they were helpless uh, in trying to, to deliver this boy from this um, demon possession. They could not exercise the, the demon. And there are other cases where they were able to do and deliver, but this could not deliver in this case because this is a very strong demonic power that has lodged in this stronghold. And our Lord uh, pointed out that uh, when you're dealing with this kind of demonic powers that are so ingrained for so long, for so many years, it requires more than just in the name of Jesus. It requires an effort in terms of making prayer and also a time of fasting. That's the first thing I'd like to say. It was not just he said it only come up by prayer. He said by prayer and fasting. In terms of the gentleman, uh, he asked our Lord, if you can uh, help my son. And clearly there's an element of doubt there. He's not saying, Lord, you, you, you know, do this. He said, if you can, um, help that. So our Lord had to draw this man's faith out. And that's why he put so much emphasis as the oh, of little faith. And uh, he's trying to draw out more faith out of this man. And when the Lord said, you know, if you have faith to believe, all things are possible. Then the man responded with, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Here's a person who has a measure of faith in Christ, but he's not too sure if he has this uh, uh, total confidence in him. So he's asking the Lord, look, if little faith I've got, help me even with a little unbelief that might still be res res uh, resident within me. So he's asking the Lord now to uh, to really strengthen his faith. And our Lord, uh, without any um, response, he just healed the, the, the person. So I don't think it's a matter of, that Jesus prayed to the Father and asked deliverance. He's acting as God. 
who has all power. And you'll notice that in every case in the New Testament where Christ uses his supernatural power, it is never to help himself. It's always to help somebody else. So you'll always find that he will be thirsty, he'll be hungry, and he will never do anything to assist himself. But when it came to helping humanity, he would exercise that divine prerogative and he brought deliverance. So it was more a sovereign act on Christ's part to demonstrate his power uh, to those around. Remember that when the story starts, the scribes and the Pharisees are harassing the disciples because, and I, suspo- I suspect they're probably saying that they didn't have enough power and their master didn't have enough power to cast out the demons. So it was disparaging the disciples. And when the Lord came down, he saw this commerce going on and he wanted to know exactly what was happening. And then they discovered that the man said, you know, I brought my son to these disciples to be healed, but they couldn't heal them. And that's where it brought about our Lord dealing with this whole matter. So he had to address this uh, concept that the disciples were impotent and he demonstrated the power that he had in bringing this deliverance. So it's more of a sovereign act on Christ's part than praying to the Father for this deliverance because, as I pointed out, when he was dealing with human beings who needed help, he used his divine power and divine prerogative, but never when it was having to do with himself. Pastor, we have a caller calling in with a question. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh Pastor Murphy, um, I want your opinion on this. Okay. And I want to use Titan treasures as a preamble. Um, I was listening to it not too long ago, and the emphasis was on the missionaries going abroad and preaching. When I was a little boy, I used to stand at the street corners and I see different churches having meetings periodically, different churches, and some of them will go into different parks and preaching. We're trying to win souls. But I notice nowadays that the churches, the people are going to the churches instead of the churches going to the people. So, so I would like your opinion on it. Uh, well, look, um, there's no question about it that the church, um, you know, is not as aggressive as it should be evangelistically and, and going out to, to reach people. Uh, that's a given. There's no doubt about that. The the only persons that seem to be very aggressive uh, doing evangelistic work are the cults, especially the JW. They're all out basically. Well, they're not out now because of the COVID, but generally speaking, before COVID, uh, yeah, you, you'll find them out on Saturdays and they'll be visiting, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a, a problem there uh, in terms of churches not going out and doing witnessing, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing I would say is, uh, in, in terms of the street preaching that used to be very common in my day, too, when I was being brought up, there was a time when you went to the street and you preached, and people would stop and listen. They'll come around the, the street light, they listen to, to preaching. That doesn't happen any longer. You can go on a street light and put up an, a microphone and begin to speak, and nobody comes out. So you're almost preaching in empty space. Uh, that has caused the church, in some measure, to change its methodology of trying to reach people. So rather than using um, the street corner preaching, which was very popular at one time, and drew a crowd who would listen to the gospel, uh, they've had to change the methodology. That's why sometimes they're now using new technology, they're using the, the, the internet, they're using the, the television, they're, they're using... Uh, 
uh, Zoom, different types of means to reach other people. The other thing, ma- comment that you made, um, really I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to agree with you on this one. The people are not coming to the church. That's a fact. No, they used to be coming to the church. For example, um, I remember that the most biggest service was the Sunday night service. That's where you had the evangelistic service because people who were not even Christians would be coming. They wouldn't come on Sunday morning, but more come on Sunday night. Now that's that's completely reversed. The Sunday night service is now the least attended service. The Sunday morning service is the best attended service. And that's because people are not sending, they're not coming themselves. The other thing I've noticed, if I might say this, sir, is that they're not, they themselves are not coming and they're not even sending their children. Things have changed radically, and I, I can't, uh, for example, our, our Sunday school for our children, we've had to have Sunday school now on Sunday evenings for children. And we did that because on Sunday mornings, nobody was sending their kids to Sunday school any longer. And we couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out myself. Why, why would parents not send their kids to Sunday school? And the idea came up among the, I threw it out to the, the church and said, listen, we've got to do something. I don't have an answer to this problem. And the ladies came together and came up with the idea, look, let's try Sunday evening. And it is enormous successful. And then COVID hit us. But it was a tremendous success. that, uh, And I couldn't figure that out. Why would people send their children on Sunday evening, but not Sunday morning? So we've had, we have Sunday morning Sunday school for adults and like for teenagers, but we don't have it for the children because no, 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 the children are not being sent to church any longer on Sunday mornings. But on Sunday evenings, we have a very good group of children that we minister to on Sunday evenings between 4 and 6 o'clock. So we've had to change our methodology because of the changing of, I suppose, the social environment. Uh, people are not as, 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 as God-conscious as they used to be, not as... Uh, uh, don't seem to have the c- control of the children, the discipline of the children. Tell us that you you're going to church on Sunday. All that is Correct. gone. Correct. It's Correct. gone. But I would Correct. say I would say this. Um, even with us, I must say to you that what we were looking at is the Sunday night was so poorly attended. You got the faithful few that are constantly there. We know that they're going to be there. And we came up with a plan of how to address that matter. And here was how we were, we were going to do it just before COVID came. COVID hit us so badly <laughs> that uh, we really haven't been able to put this into play. But the whole plan was this. We had decided that we'll have service in the church for two, two, two Sunday nights. The other two Sunday nights, we will get into the homes of people in the community. So what we intended to do was to get two couples from the church or a couple from the church, either one, a husband and wife team, and they would invite their neighbors to their home uh, on Sunday nights, and they would conduct a Bible study. So if you've got 20 families in a home, think about that for just a moment. You've got 20 families doing Bible studies, and you've got uh, like two, two families from the neighborhood in their home doing Bible study. We thought that that was the way to go to reach the people. They're not coming, so we decided we're going to go to them. And then when we brought in the material, we, we were about to do the training, and guess what? COVID hit us. And now, of course, it's difficult to get into people's homes until this thing is restored. But that was, again, changing the methodology by which you try to deal with the problem. We knew the problem was this. They were not attending. So what we've got to do, we had to go to them. And that was the plan until COVID. It's still our plan, by the way. Um, but it is not 
like in your day and my day when parents would send kids to, to church and they themselves would come or, or whatever, that has all changed. We are now living in a materialistic world mm-hmm. where people's minds are no longer for, focused on things that are spiritual. It's all material and they're all living for time and not for eternity. And that has affected the capacity of the church to minister in ways that it normally would have done that. But the church has to be always thinking how to address those kind of issues. And we thought that we solved the problem with the children, but then we were going to solve the problem with the, the people not coming on Sunday nights. And then we are waiting now until this COVID thing kind of settles again that we can actually mm-hmm. get into the mm-hmm. home. Thank you very much, sir. Yes, sir. But the other thing I would say is that one thing I realize as well is that churches don't seem to be doing any kind of visiting, visitation, uh, reaching out people. Even before COVID, uh, I I didn't see a lot of that period uh, being done. And I think that's a mistake because we ought to be sharing the gospel. We ought to be witnessing. We can't do it all, all the time, but we should be at least be out there reaching to people and talking to the people and, and uh, communicating with them and sharing the glad tidings with them. Thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it. Thank you for encouraging others to tune in and listen to the program also. The phone line is open and available if you would like to call. The number is 268-462-7420. That number will put you live on the air. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed. We apologize if you were listening earlier and had audio issues. We seem to have resolved those. And so you can join us with good audio on our Facebook feed at this present time. And you can comment your questions right there in the comment section on your device, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Pastor, um, we've been discussing the different cults, uh, some of them more known than others, and this one that we're discussing tonight is one that I think is a little more well-known than the last two weeks, and in big part probably to some celebrities that are involved with it, but it's that of Scientology. What is Scientology? Well, Scientology, as you know, is a, it's a fairly new uh, contemporary religion, and it's a very controversial contemporary religion. Uh, it was founded by a guy called L. Ron uh, Hubbard. That word, L, stands for Lafayette. Uh, he founded it in 1953. Uh, he himself was born in Nebraska on March 13, 1911. Uh, Hubbard was a well-known science fiction writer in the 1930s, did a lot of writing on science fiction, was very, very popular, had some bestsellers. Uh, Then in 1950 itself, uh, that is about 20 years later, he came up with a book called Dianetics. And the subtitle of that book, Dianetics, had to do with the matter of uh, mental health. And um, this... Uh, it's a kind of a psychological theory of how to, therapeut- how to deal th- therapeutically with people who have emotional and um, and uh, mental problems. And he felt he had come up with a solution to deal with, with these type of issues. Uh, later, uh, he took this Dianetics and carried it over into Scientology. And then he supplemented his Dianetics with 
by borrowing from various uh, groups, uh, multiple sources he borrowed from. He borrowed from the Buddhist, Buddha, Buddhism, he borrowed from Hinduism, he borrowed from uh, science fiction. As a matter of fact, uh, he wrote a book in 1938 called Excalibur, and a lot of the principles in his science fiction in 1938 he carried over into Scientology, so you'll find that Scientology is a mixture of science fiction that he uh, m- uh, married to this Dianetics that he had. Uh, and he also borrowed from psychology. You'll find that he, he used some of the behaviorists like Watson and Thorndike and Skinner. He also borrowed from Freud. As a matter of fact, I think he stole an idea from Freud, which I'll probably show you, because Freud uh, talks about the unconscious controlling your behavior. He gave it a different term, but basically it's substantially the same thing that Freud was saying. Uh, so and, and also, he did um, apply some scientific knowledge uh, to th- to this this whole system, and uh, the other element he added to it was Gnosticism. Basically, uh, again, you'll understand what I mean by that as time goes on. So, really, Scientology is a marriage between this uh, psychotherapeutic model called Dianetics and uh, borrowing ideas from about six different sources and combining them together to form what is called Scientology. As a matter of fact, I have a quote here from him. Uh, and I'd like to read what he said. Uh, he said, Scientology has accomplished the goal of religion expressed in all man's written history, freeing of the soul through wisdom. So he's borrowed all this wisdom from these different sources, and the whole idea is to use this human wisdom mixed with his Dianetics to free the human soul. He said, uh, he talks about the sources that he borrowed from. He said, such early wisdom include the Vedas, which is from Hindu, Taoism, Buddhism, Judaism, Gnosticism, early Greek civilization, Jesus, Freud, and even Nietzsche. Uh, all of these he borrowed from. He said that uh, uh, Scientology is the westernized, Anglicanized continuance of many early forms of wisdom. So he's basically saying he's taken the, all the wisdom of the past and he's Anglicanized it. That is, he's, he's made it into English. That's what the idea is. It's the English form of old wisdom that was embodied in all these religions that we I combined together to create Scientology. That's his own words in himself. So it's a it's a hodgepodge, as you would say, an eclectic system that borrows from every source uh, and to come up with what he considered to be a solution to human problem. Pastor, we have a call from Bendel's Antigua. Brother Williams, thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Dibi Panil. Good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing well. How are you doing? How's your rain treating you? I'm blessed with the Lord. Amen. (laughs) Brother Nathan, how is it? I'm doing well. Good to hear your voice. What can we do for you tonight? Yes. Uh, I want to ask a question about Luke chapter 10. Okay. Verse 29 to, to 37. You want me to read that section for you? Yes, please. All right. Luke ten twenty nine says, But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went on and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and set him on his oil his own boot beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35 says, And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come, I will repay thee. Yes, uh, Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. Uh, when you talk about the Levite and the priest, it was, what it was, they were not Christians, the Levite and the priest that passed by. Well, the, the scribe, the Levite, the, the Levite, of course, is the part of the old Jewish economy where they were the ones that served in the temple. So they were supposed to be part of the priestly caste that took care of the uh, different paraphernalia within the temple itself. Uh, Levite, and the other one was what? The the priest. priest, the priest, as you know, is the one that would fulfill the role we're supposed to represent man before God. So they are supposed to be religious people holding to a faith in Jehovah. Uh, so um, they're supposed to be that way, but they weren't clearly, because our Lord is the only person in that particular um, parable that is mentioned. The only person that is is, is actually uh, looks good is the Good Samaritan. And remember, the Samaritan is not a Jew. And that's the, that's, the, that's the thing that really got the people upset, to be honest with you. The Samaritan was a, uh, uh, a mixture between the Assyrians and the Jewish people when Assyria took the Jews into captivity in 722. What the Assyrians did is that they took the Jews to Assyria and they transferred Assyrians to, uh, to Israel. And it was the intermarriage between the Assyrians and the Jews that created what is called the Samaritans. That's why, you, you, you know, the woman well said the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. The, Samaritans yeah. the Jews thought that the Samaritans were betrayal of the Jewish nation because they had intermarried with these pagans. So there was a great historical hostility between the two groups. They couldn't stand each other because the Samaritans... And remember also when the temple was being rebuilt, the Samaritans attempted to... Uh, um, prevent the disciples, the, uh, the Nehemiah and the group from rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the, the walls. So there's a long historical bad blood between these two groups. But our Lord in the parable is really make the person who really looks good is a good Samaritan. And uh, he's letting them know that, you know, when it comes to a relation with him, it's not about nationality and ethnic background. It has to do with the person's relationship with himself. Uh, so he's really showing up these religious leaders who should have been the ones doing exactly what the Samaritan did to show that they had become so callous and indifferent to the needs of other people that these religious people had become so hardened. But a Samaritan that they despise is the one that is compassionate. The whole parable is about compassion and uh, helping others in need uh, when there is a, a need for that person to be helped. That's what that parable is about. So it's really disparaging the religious people and elevating the Samaritan who the Jews despise, putting him in a good spotlight, that he had more heart and more compassion than these supposed religious people. And we've got the same problem today, don't we? Yeah, because as I used to, I know the, the, the Samaritan, Samaritan used to be the of, of, of Israel. They are no right. the Jews. So. Correct, correct, correct. Okay, then, so. Yeah.
But the, the the message of that, of course, is 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 applicable to us today in the church today that we can be so religious that we forget how to practically help people who are in need. And uh, you know, so we we ought to be aware that when God brings somebody in our uh, within our parameters, uh, that is a need that uh, we should try to help as we can practically. Uh, so it, it actually is a, a message also for us that we got to act out of compassion uh, in helping those who are in, in need. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it and have a blessed night. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is a live call-in program. And we are here to answer your questions from the Bible. You say, why the Bible? Because the Bible is our source of unchanging truth. Men may change, organizations may change, but the Bible stays true. The, there's a number of ways you can reach out to us and ask your questions. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. We appreciate those who have interacted with us already on the program tonight. Or if you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you want to send in your question via WhatsApp or text message, send it to 1-268-782-1454. And for those who are joining us on Facebook Live, thank you for joining us. If you would like to join us that way, you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then you can comment your questions right there on your comment section on your device while you are watching and listening behind the scenes. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from a listener in Antigua. Good evening. Can you please explain Romans chapter 7 verses 5 and 6? Which law are we released from in verse 6? And let me read those two verses. Romans 7, 5, and 6 says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And Romans 7, 6 says, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Pastor, the question is, which law are we released from in verse 6? But I think the following verses that you read uh, explain that. It's the oldness, uh, newness of spirit rather than the oldness of the letter. This has to do with the legal economy that was established under the New Testament economy. Uh, if I might put it this way, Romans chapter 6 really is explaining how the believer uh, was delivered from under the uh, the economy of law. God dealt with man on the economy of law. Now God deals with the, on the economy of grace. So God, the, God's way of dealing with humanity has changed in terms of it, we are no longer under the law, we are now under grace. And Paul will explain how that happened. Uh, I, I, we can't go through it right now, but if you read it carefully, Paul would say that uh, so long as a man is, he used marriage as, a, as a, an analogy as an allegory. He said, when a person is married to somebody, you're married for life. But then he said, if that person dies, the person who is left now is now free to marry who they want to marry. You'll find that in, in the chapter. And Paul's point is this. 
when the believer puts his faith and trust in Christ, we died with Christ. And that, what Paul is saying, when we died with Christ, we died to the law. Now that we are now free from the law, now to be married to another who is to, to, to marry to Christ. Paul explains that wonderfully in chapter number 7. In chapter 6, he tells us how we can be free from the, the habitual uh, sinning. In chapter 7, he deals with the whole question of how the believer was delivered from the law. And he uses that marriage analogy that we died with Christ. That means we are freed from what we were, we were bound to the law, we were married to the law at first. But then when we died in Christ, we were now free to marry another one, so we married to him. It, it's, it's explained very clearly in that chapter, that whole chapter deals with the law. Uh, so it's talking about the believer no longer under the economy of law as a basis for God dealing with us. Now that does not mean that God has not incorporated certain aspects of the moral law under this new economy of grace because you find in the New Testament nine of the ten commandments in the New Testament are repeated as part as a new covenant. The only uh, the only um, the only commandment that's not repeated in the New Testament under the economy of, of, uh, of, of grace is the Sabbath because that day has now become the Lord's day has now replaced that. In principle, the believer still observes the, the moral law in the sense that there's a special day, that we do it in, in spirit, whatever it is, and uh, all the other laws that were written against, we still follow those laws. The only law that is not repeating in the New Testament for the church uh, to be bound to is the law of the Sabbath, because that was a day that celebrated Israel's deliverance and Israel's redemption. And now there's a new creation uh, which is the believers in Christ, and the new day that celebrates that, which is the first of the week, the Lord's resurrection. So, uh, to answer the question, he's talking about being brought from under the economy of the 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 old Jewish law system. We're no longer under that as believers. That was the letter of the law. Uh, we are now under a system of grace. Thank you for the questions that have come in thus far tonight. We appreciate you interacting with us. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air, one 462 7420 Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 1454 We are talking about the topic of Scientology tonight, and we will continue to answer your questions as they come in. But until more questions come in, we'll continue this topic. Pastor, you were mentioning uh, Scientology and uh, Ron Hubbard, the founder. And all I had to do was Google Scientology, and I came up with a couple of articles that were talking about the founder, Ron Hubbard, in a very controversial uh, light. Why, why is that? Well, because uh, he is a very questionable character, and he's not a man of ethical integrity, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And let me, let me use five examples. So I might wait. For example, he claimed that he graduated in civil engineering from George Washington University with a degree in nuclear physics. When the researchers investigated, the university records show that he attended only for two short years. The second year, he was put on probation because he failed physics, <laughs> and he never completed his degree. But yet, he is saying that he is a graduate from George Washington University. So, I mean, you can't hide these facts. Yeah. They eventually come out to haunt you. So when you have a person who's headed a Scientology, a religious movement, and he's not a man of integrity, automatically... Uh, that puts the whole system into uh, make it suspect. The other thing is this. 
he claimed to, have ho- to hold a PhD from a place called Sequoia University in California. All investigations have ch- checked if there's such a university called Sequoia uh, University. There's no such university that offers any kind of PhD any place in California. So again, here's a man that is deliberately uh, prevaricating, fabricating stories to us, as opposed to make himself look like an intellectual person. But when the investigation is done, no such university exists. So his credibility is down the drain. The other thing is that a guy called Gregory Armstrong, who was a devout uh, Scientologist, the Church of Scientology commissioned him to write an autobiography of Hubbard, who's a founder. And uh, he discovered some things that made him leave Scientology. For example, Hubbard claimed that he, is a, he was a war, World War II hero that he was, uh, he was wounded and he miraculously uh, healed himself because he was fatally, almost fatally uh, wounded in combat. When they checked, they discovered the man never went to combat. Not only that, uh, after he was discharged in 1946, uh, he was granted 40% disability pay because he had four conditions, arthritis, Bursitis uh, and con- uh, conjunctivitis, and here's the, here's the thing, Nathan. He continued collecting the money for these disabilities even after he had claimed years later he had found a cure for these things using his own Dianetics. So, I mean, what kind of a character would do something so unethical? So that's why you get uh, his character so besmirched that nobody is not, not a credible character. The other thing is this. When the biographer was investigating uh, him, getting his life story, they discovered that he was deeply involved in the occult, deeply involved in the occult. Mm. As a matter of fact, there's a notorious Satanist called Alexander Crowley uh, that was his mentor. I mean, Crowley is is known a, a big Satanist, and in addition to that, um, he was also the um, associated with the, uh, the protege of Crowley, a guy called John Parson, and they engage in sex magic and black magic in their uh, hospice. He was involved in all of this kind of evil, basically. But then, that's why you find in Scientism, uh, in Scientology, he adds occult thinking into the system as well, because he himself was involved, deeply involved in occult. So you can see when people start to investigate uh, and they do a thorough job on you, your credibility, quite frankly, just goes down the line. The other thing I would like to say is, when he wrote the book on Dianetics, the modern way of dealing with mental health, uh, science, uh, etc., he claimed that he did all kinds of research and scientific investigation to come up with this. His own son said that no research at all was ever done. His own son said that he took tidbits and pieces from other writers and blended them together, put them in a blender, basically, and came up with these ideas. His own son said that the vast majority of the examples that he used, he used over 200 examples in the book Dianetics, were things that he created out of his mind. His own son is saying that. And um, his own son also points out that his father, um, Hubbard, was involved in the occult on black magic from age 16. See? So all of this has now come out through the investigation into this character. So you can discuss, when you when you Google whatever it is, you see that this is not a credible person we're dealing with. Uh, and and the, the last thing, Nathan, is that his books, Excalibur, 
a science, uh, science fiction book. Remember, in the 1930s, he was an excellent science fiction writer. Right. A lot of the ideas from that same book are, are now actually part of the Scientology, quite frankly. And so it's clear that this man has added science fiction uh, to this religion. I have never, as a matter of fact, I want to give you a verse that, uh, I, I was checking Bible verses that really speak to this issue. And uh, one Bible verse that I would like you to read that I think is, in my judgment, sums up uh, this gentleman. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Bible verse in First uh, Timothy. Uh, I, I wrote it down myself. Let me see if I can find it. But Paul talks about it, that men would turn away from the truth and turn to fables and, uh, and so on. It's in, uh, for, I think it's in First Timothy. I know it's in chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy 4? Yeah, check, check that for me for just a moment. All right. Oh, yeah, it's in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. Verse 4 says... Read verse 3 first. Okay. Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4 say, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And verse 4, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned onto fables. I think this was a, when I read that verse, I said it's a classic example of mm. what Paul understood, that people turning away from the truth of God's word and turning to such science fiction that is a whole mumbo-jumbo, quite frankly, that he has now added and, and created this massive uh, movement of almost a million people. And so many significant people as well have become part of that system. But uh, that's the reason why uh, there is such a credibility gap that when you Google uh, Hubbard and you Google Scientology, you get all of this negative feedback because the man's character has been impugned because of these type of things that he claimed, which were shown to be total fabrications and lies. Uh, and that's why it, it, it's that way. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come from a listener in Anguilla. Good evening, gentlemen. As far as you know, Pastor, is there any prophecies to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church? The rapture has never, uh, we've always believed the rapture is imminent. There's no Bible prophecy that uh, that requires the to be fulfilled before the, the rapture. I would say to you, though, there are a lot of prophecies about the second coming. And what I have discovered is that a lot of the prophecies that are made about the second coming, signs of the times, basically, uh, indicate that the second coming is near. Now, if the second coming is near and the rapture occurs before that, I am saying to you that we are minutes to midnight, and the church needs to wake up that it is far, we are far nearer to midnight than people think. And I, I, and I really believe that. But in terms of Bible prophecy, there's nothing that I am aware of that is required to be fulfilled before the rapture. Uh, and that's why we've always emphasized all the, the, the scholars about the premillennial and the pre-tribulation have always emphasized this idea of the imminent return of Christ. The Apostle Paul, if you read his writings, you get the impression that Paul really thought the Lord would actually return within his, his lifetime. Uh, and that is what the rapture is all about, this imminent return of our Lord. Not, not, we're, not to, uh, we're not told to look for this and then we'll get the rapture. However, there are signs that are going to predate when our Lord comes in all of his glory with his angels. You find that in Matthew chapter 24. So no, no Bible prophecy, to my knowledge, need to be fulfilled uh, before the rapture. Thank you, for, thank you for that question and the uh, sobering reality that we need to be living as 
if the rapture could happen at any time. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.18. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live interactive program, and it is here for your own benefit to be able to ask questions. You can call and ask at 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454, or you can send it on Facebook by going to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook uh, live video feed and then comment your question there on the comment section. Nathan, I'd just like to add here, you know, I, I hope the, the those who are listening should be aware, we have a lot of rascals uh, religious rascals in the pulpit that should not be in the pulpit, okay? And some of them are very well-known on uh, television as well. They have large congregations, but they're just rascals. And people need to understand that. We have to detach ourselves from the personality cult that gathers around an individual uh, because he might be charismatic or because he might be uh, eloquent or because he, whatever it is, we've got to focus on Scripture. Let that be the standard that helps us to decide. Listen, the only thing will save us from the deception that is coming and that is already here is the Word of God. And that's where our confidence must be in the Word of God. That's why, uh, uh, I mean, uh, that's why you can have a, a group like Scientology today. Uh, how in the world can anybody follow a leader, a religious leader, who forms a religious church, calling it the Church of Scientology, and be so downright unethical and so evil, and yet he gets a pass. And the only reason that happens because it's a personality cult, basically. Uh, people have not looked at it from a biblical perspective and held to Scripture. They've actually gone with the individual and uh, his, his um, ability. What is true salvation? Well, biblically, uh, salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible is very, very simple. It tells you that man, God created man perfect. Uh, man was misled, and man fell. Man became a sinner. The sin nature is passed on to every generation. Uh, God, in His grace and His mercy, made a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise, that He would send the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bruise his heel. We know the serpent bruised his heel when our Lord was crucified on the cross, and that's exactly how those nails were approached. It was gone right through the, the, the foot into the heel. And of course, our Lord crushed uh, Satan at the cross. That's where he was defeated. And uh, what God asked of us is two things. God said, you've got to acknowledge that you are a sinner. And we all know that we're sinners. And God asks us to repent of our sins and seek forgiveness and to put our faith and trust in what Christ did on the cross. Not in the church, not in the pastor, not in the pope, not even in the teaching, but our faith and trust must be on the finished work, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, and what he did for us on the cross, the Bible said that God forgives us, God justifies us, God adopts us into a family, and we became, become born again into God's family. That is in just what salvation is all about. It's what Christ has done for us on the cross, and us putting our faith and trust in him, uh, that is a result of our repentance 
uh, of our sins. Pastor, what's your purpose in discussing these cults like Scientology? Is it to enamor us with them? No, I, my, my main purpose really is to make people aware that there's so many bizarre teachings out there. I myself find it totally incredible that this could actually be called a church yeah. and a guy like this could get away with this kind of nonsense. I mean, this is pure poppycock, to be honest with you. It's, it's more gibberish. It's just, it's just uh, fiction. It's inanity. It, it's, uh, there's no real substance to it. But how in the world a man could get well, almost a million followers to believe this kind of crap? And I think we need to make people aware that the deception the Bible talks about, the falling away in Second Thessalonians, he said this will not happen until there's a falling away. And Paul talks about that in Second Timothy chapter 4 as well. The falling away has already begun. And we are in dire, desperate times where we've got a lot of false religious people who, because of their clout and because of the media and the access to the media uh, and the Internet, has begun to spread all this error uh, and uh, somehow it's captivated the minds of people uh, who have turned it themselves away from the truth to embrace this kind of nonsense. And the whole goal is to explain to people that there are countless uh, churches and countless cults and countless isms out there trying to capture the mind of your children and uh, your family. And the only way to deal with this matter is to let people become aware of what they really believe. Because people go into these things, and some of these things, you would never know that it's a false church because you never learn the secrets until you're in it already. Yeah. And once you get into it, it's very hard to leave. Once you've embraced something for four or five years, and then to, to, to be admit that you were wrong is, is very, very difficult because of human pride. But the whole goal is to expose people to the countless errors that are out there, let them know what these people teach, not to be sucked into it, and to be very careful about your children being misled in this area. And of course, we are told in Scripture that we have to defend the faith, but we also have to rebuke those who are in error. So that's the whole purpose of it. Pastor, we have a question from a listener in Antigua. If there is not a righteous man on earth, but God or Jesus, when he comes back to the earth... Who is he coming back for since there is none righteous? Well, it's not none righteous in terms of self-righteousness. Man has no righteousness on his own. But if you know anything about the gospel, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, two things happen. Number one, God cancels your sins. And number two, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to your account. It's called imputed righteousness. So as far as God is concerned, when you repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are as righteous as Christ is because you're clothed in his righteousness. And that's how God can still deal with us, even though we still have this sinful nature, because when he looks upon us, he sees us in Christ. That's the biblical doctrine. He's coming back for those who are righteous in Christ, not those who are self-righteous in their church or in their religion, but those who have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them because of the faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you to the listener who called in with that question. We appreciate it. As we're talking about Scientology, uh, how large of an organization is it, and does it attract a certain type of people? Well, um, it has close to a million followers worldwide. It boasts that it has 700 centers in 65 countries. That is very, very significant. And uh, it also has uh, some of the very popular names that people know about. For example, people have heard of Tom Cruise. I think he's one of the best well-known Scientologists that you people know about. And then uh, John Travolta. 
he's another Scientologist, and uh, Sona Bono, who is one of these uh, singers, basically, he is also one of them. And then Christy Allen, another movie. So these people are uh, people in the limelight, the people that people know about, quite frankly. And the attraction may be that, you know, if these type of people... Um, join this kind of thing, you know, this is the kind of thing I want to be part of because people want to be something that seems to be successful, basically. The other thing is that uh, Scientology is one of the wealthiest religions on planet Earth. And you can see why with all of these celebrities, etc., etc., and it's very, very costly to get what they call auditing and get these engrams out of you, etc., etc. It's not free like the gospel. There's tremendous cost. You have to pay thousands of dollars to get your problem solved. Um, But what is interesting as well, Nathan, is that uh, their constituents are made up of 37% of them have college degrees. 80% of them come from the middle class, which is very, very significant. And the other thing is that most of their followers, uh, 47% of their followers, came from the Protestant Church and uh-huh. the and the Catholic Church. Uh, 40% of them came from the Protestant Church and 26% came from the Catholic Church. Uh, and, and by the way, these people who are part of the um, Scientology still claim to be practicing Christianity. Uh, this is the ambivalent, this, this is the, what I call the schizophrenic age in which we live. And uh, that people can hold the two complete opposites and can't see there's a difference between them because we're now in the age of what they call, uh, um, we've gone beyond modern age. It's now called modernism, uh, modernity. That's the term that is used. We're now calling what is called the postmodern age. The modern age is when man uses a reason. The postmodern age, reason is no longer applicable. What happens is my narrative, my story is what's the important thing. It's not about my reasoning to decide on anything. It's how I feel about it, quite frankly. So that's why you can explain you've got these ex-Protestants, ex-Catholics, joined Scientology, claiming that they're still practicing Christians, but yet they're involved in this demonic uh, occult system that is all this combination of these false religions plus adding um, science fiction. But uh, that is the constituency we're looking at. Middle class people, highly educated college students, uh, etc. And you've got people coming from both the Catholic Church, 45% from the Protestant, 27 from the Catholic, forming the, the bulk of the people who are now part of Scientology, which is staggering when you think about that for just a moment. A question coming in, Pastor. I am of the opinion that a sermon is not complete unless there is an altar call. What do you think? Uh, I I am I, I don't know to, how to answer that question. If I should answer it in the affirmative or or just say it depends. Uh, I think a pastor, for me personally, I give all the calls, but I have to fee- I have to have a sense that. I'm connecting with the audience, and the Lord is working in the congregation. There are times when I finish preaching, and I can I, I, I just don't feel anything, quite frankly. I'm depending on the Lord to lead me in those kind of areas, so I would not give an invitation. I think it's left to the discretion of the pastor. Um, remember that the invitation, uh, quite frankly, is almost a novelty. I don't know if you know that. It was only introduced during the... 
the Sankey and um, uh, Moody and the Finney days before there was no invitation. Really? Yeah, a guy would come to church and it was left for the Holy Spirit to deal with the individual, but there was no real altar call. That only came about during the revival movement, so it was something like a novelty, to be very honest with you. As a matter of fact, if you read some of the, um, when these things were happening, uh, there were actually some pastors who were, were resentful that they were doing this this process. The other thing that concerns me, if I might say about the invitation, is that I've seen uh, pastors who manipulate the invitation, which I think is quite unethical, and it burns my heart when I see it being done. I've, I've, I've spoken about this in our church, where a guy will tell you, I'm not going to call you forward tonight, but if you have a particular need... I would just ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to embarrass you tonight. And you put your hand up that you want prayer because he already told you he's not going to call you down the aisle. And then after you've done all of that, he said, "Now, if you raise your hand, if you're not want to be a hypocrite, you've got to come forward." Nothing burns me more than that. That is completely unethical. And I think that um, that I would rather that kind of practice be avoided. If you want people to come forward, be very straightforward with them. Come forward if the Lord has spoken to you, but don't mislead people and then use all kinds of psychology to get them feel guilty to get them down the aisle. Uh, to my mind, that is totally unethical. But, sir, I would say to you, it depends. Uh, and I think you've got to trust the pastor's discretion in that matter because he's the one that's doing the preaching. He has to be sensitive. Uh, but our altar is always open. Um, if they want to come to the altar, they can come to the altar. But not every sermon I preach, I give an invitation. What I've discovered, I must say, that uh, very often the same people come down the aisle uh, regularly. There are people in my church I've never seen come down the aisle, even for any invitation. And I notice that there are several people who are uh, who do that fairly frequently. I'm not too sure if their hearts are more sensitive. I'm not too sure if the people make the decisions that they make in the pew itself, because that's what really matters. It's not this outward thing. It's what happens in the heart of a person that is very, very, very crucial. So I have to respect that um, God may be working in this person's heart, and they just don't feel it's in their place to go forward at this point in time. And i got to trust the Lord to, to work in their hearts, and that's what really is important. Another question from a listener. I recently heard someone say that you should not tell a child that they told a lie. You should tell them that they told an untruth. What do you think? Well, a lie is a lie. I don't I don't like the gymnastics. We're playing semantics here right now. I mean, if a child is told a lie, the child has told a lie. If you want to say that a lie is an untruth, no problem with that. But there's a word in the Bible called lie. And it said if the devil is the father of lie, uh, the father of lies. So... I see nothing wrong in using biblical language uh, in telling the child, it's a lie, it's a lie. I don't see why we should have any kind of clash over that whatsoever. Uh, I think sometimes we use euphemisms, soften the impact of using words, and I think we, we lose the thrust of mm. those words. People have become, you, you almost got to shock people by saying things that are unusual to get their attention because they've become so accustomed to this soft way of dealing with things, you know, you've got to be diplomatic and you've got to be politically correct. Political correct. And people are tired of that. Uh, and I think that the, the proper thing to do if the Bible said there's a lie and the, the person told a lie, it's a lie. We don't have to call this an untruth. Lies are untruth, but if you want to use the language, use the biblical language and let's get back to uh, telling people um, using words of Scripture rather than just trying to, to paint things to make them, make them sound uh, more pleasant. It doesn't help the situation one bit. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online 
at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, we are also on Facebook. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, and you can follow the program. We still have just under 30 minutes left in tonight's episode of the program. So there's still time for you to send in your questions, still time for you to even encourage your friends, your family, and your neighbors or coworkers to tune in to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, what are some of the publications that Scientology has out there? I'm assuming they are putting out publications. Yeah, they produce scores of publications, and uh, that is one of their methods of uh, proselyting and, and getting people uh, into the church. Let me just give you a short list because uh, they, they publish um, uh, magazines uh, and uh, I think called The Source is one. They've got another one called The Delphian. Now, think about that for just a moment. You've heard the 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 uh, the, um, the evil spirit, or the there's a term that the Delphian spirit. Okay. That you've heard that, that, that uh, oh, uh, oracle, Delphian yes. oracle. Think about that for just a moment. You're calling the Church of Scientology, Scientology, and you are now calling one of your magazines the Delphian Oracle. Quite frankly, and then another another magazine is Advance, and then they got one called Auditor, and of course the main publication, the main textbook is one called Dianetics. These are uh, uh, five of their publications. There are others, but these are the main ones that people need to be aware of uh, in terms of what they use and uh, how they try to reach others and to proselyte. Is the organization very structured, or it's just kind of a, a hodgepodge? No, it, the, uh, the organization is very, very structured, and it's from top down, quite frankly. Uh, there are numerous organizations uh, in the world, but all of them are directed and controlled by a few who are at the top of the main office. And the U.S. headquarters is in Los Angeles and also in Clearwater uh, in Florida. But everything, quite frankly, is filtered through the organization down to all these other organizations in different parts of the world. So it's a very top-down authoritarian type of control over the, the movement. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.36, and we want to say a big thank you to those who have already interacted with us on the program tonight. If you'd like to ask a question, you can call 268-462-7420 or WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. What about other associations that may be affiliated with Scientology? Yeah, and this is the, this is part of the subtlety of how they uh, try to work their way into the minds and hearts of people. That there are numerous organizations that you would never know the uh, the relationship between those organizations and Scientology. For example, they got an organization called um, uh, Advanced Organization of Los Angeles. Now, no word Scientology is in there, quite frankly. They've got another one called Religious Technology Center. Again, you would never... Fi- and then they got one called FLAG, F-L-A-G, FLAG. These are organizations that are uh, linked with the group, but no s- indication that these are Scientology uh, organizations. And then, uh, Nathan, they have some other clandestine um, affiliates and agencies that they use as vehicles for recruitment and to disseminate the information. Listen to some of these names. Sterling Management. 
Hmm. Now think about Sounds that pretty benign. financial uh, consultancy kind of thing. But Scientology, Citizens Commission on Human Rights, uh, Citizens Against Taxes, uh, the Way Happiness Campaign, that's another organization, the Hollander Consultants, uh, they got one called Irons, another one called Marcus and Valco, and one called Uptrends. All of these are part of the whole uh, Scientology organization. But notice, you will never have an idea that these have anything to do with Scientology. It's a mark of subtle brilliance of how to infiltrate the minds of people and how to um, disseminate the information and how to recruit people into the organization. So in addition to the church, you've got these other organizations that are working in conjunction with the church uh, to, to reach people, to bring them within the organization. It makes me wonder if that's not one of their reasons that they have so many middle class or college educated individuals because there's a number of those sounded like they involved business and yeah, that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so they've drawn them in, built a relationship, and then drawn them into this cult. One thing I've discovered about uh, religion, especially in America, if I might say that, it's big business. Mm. You'd be surprised how many uh, organizations, including the the SDA, the, uh, the JW, I mean, countless of them that is big, they have businesses and I mean invest in all different types of things you'd be shocked if you would discover the investment involved including the Catholic Church of course you know is investing in all different types of things I think things. the Mormons also Mormons oh yeah Mormons are well known for that to be honest with you but that is very very clear that Scientology as well is uh, investing in different different means in different ways so here's a question for sure. you should independent Baptist churches be investing in businesses and following <laughs> that model because obviously it's drawing people in or is that crossing uh, I, I am very reluctant to, to suggest that we go that monetary way and, and to go into into, into business. I, I can see, I know that it takes money to do things, to be very honest with you. As you know, we are trying to plan to have a, a Baptist rehab center to deal with, with, uh, deal with uh, addicts in, in Antigua. And again, um, I can't see us going to any business to, to, to support that, to be very honest with you. I think that the church need to be projected as an institution that depends on the Lord and depends on the people of the Lord. Uh, but the idea of getting into business after business, I, I, I'm a very reluctant to, 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 to suggest the church should go in that direction. I think it almost um, turns it into a, a marketing industry, to be honest with you, and money becomes central. I think that is a very dangerous trend, and I wouldn't recommend that we go in that direction, period. Would it also be possible for the church to lose its focus? if they? Oh, yeah, definitely. Def that, there's no question about that. You can easily lose your focus like that. You become too materialistic, and you depend more on the queen than you depend on the god, because the queen's head is on the, on the dollar, to be honest with you. We've got to be very, very careful about that. I know I've asked you this question before, but it's been a little while. So for the listener who has just tuned in in the last uh, couple of months, I'm looking for a church. How do I determine which church I should go to? My my um, suggestion is very, very brief. Um, I think, number one, you should look for a church where the gospel is being preached and the preaching is, I would say, expository. Um, you're looking for a church where 
Um, it has a missionary program. Remember that the church has been given a mandate, Matthew chapter 28, to be uh, missionary-minded. I, I think every New Testament church should have missionaries, and you should want a church, join a church where you can be part of that missionary program because that's the whole purpose of the church. Uh, I also think that you need to look for a church where you feel comfortable and where your gifts and talents can be used within the ministry. You don't want to just go into a church and become a, a pew warmer and a person who's a sponge who just takes up. You want to give back, and that's where your gifts and your talents ought to be used. So I think when you look at the preaching of the Word, the missions program, uh, your capacity to be involved and to use your gifts and your talents, I think those are the, the, the key factors that should be part. I, I would also say that it would be good to have a, a the church that has a Sunday school and have a youth program because if, normally if you go into church you have kids and you want them to meet those different types of needs. But that was a, that's very, very simple. And, uh, and I make sure that they're doctrinally songed. I can't overemphasize that, especially when it comes to the fundamental cardinal doctrines of the scriptures, uh, which would be the Trinity, which would be the deity of Christ, which would be the atonement death of Christ, which would involve his, uh, his resurrection, which would involve his second coming, the rapture, and uh, also um, uh, you would not only have baptism and you would have uh, communion. Uh, but I think that there are those key things that are, are very central uh, to the particular um, joining the church. Back to the topic of Scientology. Uh, are there any key concepts that we need to make sure that we understand in order to wrap our mind around this church? Yeah. We, I use the word church loosely. Yeah, yeah, we we will, as we begin to talk about what they believe and what they teach, it's important to have some key words and understand what those words mean, uh, if we can understand what this whole movement is about. Uh, let me give you some key terms that I think are vitally important uh, in this matter. Um, they talk about men being thetans, T-H-E-T-A-N-S, thetans, which means that we human beings are immortal uh, souls trapped in a body, and we have to free ourselves from this body. That, that, no, that is Gnosticism right there, okay? But that's, so we are thetans, okay? We are really immortal spirits, divine spirits, quite frankly, trapped in a human body. So you're going to come across that word thetans again and again and again. The only problem that with the thetan, which is every human being who is not a, a Scientologist, is that we are ignorant of who we really are, and we need to be enlightened of how to get out of this trap of so this that's body. A new age concept. New age concept, quite frankly. Then there's something called ingrams. Uh, that's the problem that men have. Engrams are the accumulation of painful subconscious memories that we have because of traumas we've been through and experience we've been through. That you, you heard about uh, people traumatizing the wound, and uh, this is where this concept is coming from. So these engrams because we were traumatized, maybe in our wound. And the other thing is that they believe that we thetans, human beings, have gone to over a trillion uh, reincarnations. So all these lives we've had, we've got all these traumas that are impressed in our minds that limit us. And their job is to remove these engrams to free us so we have more li liberty. Now you talk fiction, you talk mythology. I was going to say, it sounds like a movie <laughs> script. <laughs> That's why I said the guy was a great... Um, 
science fiction. science fiction writer. Uh, so th- th- these are the memories that we need to, to get erased. And they're, they've got the secret of how to erase these traumas that we have. And that's why we have emotional problems and mental problems, etc. So we've got to get rid of it. And then there's something called auditing. Auditing is a counseling process of identifying how to overcome these engrams and how to achieve enlightenment. So it's really a, it's counseling, but they use a fancy word, auditing. Is that you audit books and you want to see where your problems are, basically. That's the term that it's used. So when you're dealing with Scientology, you've got to be familiar with that term. The other thing that um, I think that people need to be aware of is that there's something called an e-meter. An e-meter is an electro uh, psychometer. And basically, the auditor, who is the counselor, uses this e-meter, and you are wired up to this meter, and they ask you questions. And this e-meter uh, measures your resistance. It's almost like a lie detector. So if you are lying, you sweat more, therefore the resistance is less. That way they know exactly where the engrams are when you ask the questions and then they go to hold it. So something called an e-meter that is being used. <laughs> it is so comical that I was, you know, when I'm reading this kind of stuff, I'm saying, but how could people be so deluded? Are you ready to invest in one for Grace Baptist Church? <laughs> but, uh, so you've got to become with that. But the e-meter is used to, uh, to find out where these engrams are. And here's the matter. There's another term that you need to find. It's the word M-E-S-T. Okay. Mest. It has M means matter, E means energy, S means space, and T means time. And this is where man is trapped in this mess universe. We're trapped through matter, energy, space, and time. And that's where these titans are no trap, and they're no to deliver us from this kind of <laughs> this kind of thing. Uh, you almost want to laugh, to be honest with you. It's, it's, uh, can you imagine a, a college student who's done a four-year degree actually believing yeah. this science fiction, to be honest? But that's where we are, right? When you go away from the truth, the Bible says you turn to fables. The other uh, thing I think that you, you should be aware of, they said that they've got eight dynamics that uh, are influences that urge you to do things. We would call them desires, basically, but they call them the eight dynamics. And they said that the eight dynamics that urge you or influence people, uh, number one is yourself. Number two is sex and your family. Number three is groups you belong to. Number four is mankind. Number five is living things that are living. Number six is the universe. Number seven is spirits. And number eight is the supreme being. So these are the eight dynamic forces that urge you or prompt you or influence you to do things. And the, the, the other thing that I think is important when you begin to understand Scientology, they said that there are three universes. Uh, number one, your own universe. Number two, the material universe. And number three, the group of all universes of all the other people. So these are the three universes that uh, you'll have to deal with in um, Scientology. The way they define evil, evil is destructive action or thought. Evil is not an offense against God. There's no such thing as sin. Uh, Good is constructive action and thought. So one is destructive action and thought, and one, the opposite, is, is constructive. That's how they define good and evil. There's no such word as sin 
in listen church of Scientology imagine mm-hmm. that so man doesn't have to be rescued from sin because that's not the problem is these engrams that he has to be rescued from so those are terms I think Nathan that uh, people need to become familiar with uh, if you're going to understand uh, as we begin to discuss what they believe and what how they go about doing it um, those are t- terms I think that need to be familiar with as well if you had to sum it up I know we could probably spend a whole night just talking about it but what exactly would you say they are teaching well it's basically teaching that human beings are um, deified beings that what they, what they explain is that these titans, these, these immortal beings that we are, we got so bored in our past lives that to create amusement, we spin off from our minds the material world. And then we got so engaged in this material world that we got trapped in it. <laughs> so we are so trapped that we forgot who we were. Hmm. So we have, <laughs> and because we were reborn and reborn and reborn over, over a trillion different times, we got wounded so many different times. We got all this messed up engrams in our minds. So we now have to, to try to remove and erase these engrams using this emitter and this kind of audited counseling. And uh, I know it sounds like um, persons probably hearing this on your radio will probably think that this this is crazy stuff but it really is crazy but I guess you and I that's exactly where we are uh, in our modern times we're no longer living in a modern age where we reason remember we rejected the Bible and we made reason supreme now we rejected reason and we are now living in a postmodern age where reason is no longer it's not about logic any longer. It's not about evidence any longer. It's about how I feel, what I think, mm. what I want. So, you know, there's a time when you can argue or present evidence, but that doesn't matter anymore. Facts don't matter anymore. We, that's the age we're in. And religion has helped foster that. And I would say also embraced it. Uh, so it's part of the modern stage in which we're living. According to Scientology, what do they say is the problem with mankind? Well, as I just told you, the problem is the not, it's ignorance. Let me put it this way. Our real problem is that we don't know that we were these titans, who are these immortal spirit deified beings. We had so much power, but we got so bored with this power. We just spin off this material world and then we got attracted to it. And we were so involved in it for so long that we've forgotten who we were, who we are. So now we now have to bring man back to let him understand you have power. You are God, to be honest with you, but you just don't know who you are. And let us help you uh, come back to that stage where you're so enlightened, you have this higher consciousness of who you are, and then you can use your power. For example, they practice astral travel, out-of-body experiences. When you become enlightened, you're at the stage now where you can manipulate the, the material world they do uh, um, um, psychic phenomena, like for example, telekinesis, where they can uh, move things without just using their mind, or they can read your thoughts, uh, etc. Telepathy is called from a distance. So now, when you come to that enlightened state, all of this, by the way, Nathan, is a cult practice that is nothing new, but it's marriage to religion, and somehow it's been able to be given a name, church. But actually, it is all occult 
baptism that is now married to Christianity, as, as it were, and and being foisted on the public as though it is something that has to do with the Christian faith. It has nothing to do with the Christian faith. We've got about four and a half minutes left in this episode. I'm a little intrigued with the topic of auditing. Uh, anything else you want to mention on that, or do you want to give some closing comments on comparing them to Christianity? Do you think we'll be able to finish all of this well, tonight? No, we can't finish tonight okay. because we have to deal with the what they believe about. Because I tell you, we've said in every other program, when you're dealing with any movement, we have to see how it compares with Christianity. And so what we would need to do with this particular movement as well is see exactly what we did with the other cults. What, is, what does it say about God? Who's God? What does it say about man? What does it say about sin? What does it say about salvation? Uh, uh, these are the things that I want to begin to look. What does it say about Christ? Who is he? Etc. Etc. That's how you measure any movement. And if it's contrary to scripture, it's in errors of falsehood and we can abandon it we need to expose it so we will have to spend at least another program going through those specifics looking at those particular doctrines the doctrine of man the doctrine of God doctrine of salvation etc etc but this matter of auditing quite frankly is is, it's actually as I said you're connected to this e-meter you're asked certain questions and here's the thing Nathan um, the stories that these people have told uh, about their past life experiences. I'm going to give you one maybe next week. You're going to laugh of what they said, who they were before, what they did before. Uh, it's like a book out of pure science fiction. It's like this guy has become so enamored with himself and his ability to write science fiction that he decided that I'm going to force this on humanity. And he does it in such a way that uh, he uses people that is going through this uh, this um, auditing who were telling the counselor exactly their past life experience and he records it in the book telling exactly what the person said so the auditing has to do with the counseling attached to the meter basically and the persons ask you specific questions now here's the thing you could project into people's mind and get people to answer questions according to a particular frame that you have within your own thinking Another, I can lead you in in, uh, in questioning. So it's not the person sharing with you what they want. It's you asking questions and they're responding to it. So that is basically what the auditing part of it is. It's counseling but using the e-meter and it's more the, the counselor projecting questions and the response that you're given, et cetera, et cetera. The e-meter... I'm curious, this is kind of a comical question, but would that make your counseling sessions <laughs> when you're doing uh, marriage counseling and family counseling, would that make it any easier, Pastor? <laughs> no, look, all I would say to you is that I just think that this, by the way, this guy, um, I will give some quotes about him. It's all about money uh, for him. I'll give you some staggering quotes that he caked. So it's all about how he could have accumulated a lot of money. And I think he's really exploited his literary skills and talents and uh, came up with a religion so that he can actually become a, a multimillionaire. He's now dead. He died in, he was born in 1911. He died in 1986. He's now dead, quite frankly. But he died a very wealthy man. And you can see why, because you've got all these movie stars, all these big people, all these college students, etc., etc. And this is a very expensive way of getting these ingrams. So, now, here's the difference between his teaching and the gospel. Salvation is free. Christ paid the price. You don't have to pay thousands of dollars 
to get your problem solved. Your problem is sin because you offended the holy God. And most of your hang-ups that you have is because of the guilt that you carry. And by putting your faith and trust in Christ, that guilt is removed. And therefore, all these emotional problems that you normally have are, are pretty absolved the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it costs you absolutely nothing but faith and trust in Him. So is it true to say salvation was free and didn't cost anyone anything? It only it's free to man, but it did cost God His Son, and of course, um, there's no other greater gift than the gift of His Son. So while we don't pay for the gift of salvation, it's a great price that God paid when He gave His only begotten Son. That's what gives you the value of our salvation. Can you give us in the last thirty seconds an overview of what we'll be discussing next week, or kind of whet our appetite to make sure that we tune in for next week's episode as we continue yeah. this topic? Next week, I'm going to look at more of these uh, definitions that we use. I'm going to deal more extensively with the counseling process. But then I want to look specifically at the doctrinal areas uh, of what their beliefs is about God, uh, man, salvation, Jesus Christ, death, resurrection, etc., etc. So the whole plan is to deal with it in relation to the major doctrines of the Bible. And if you have been listening throughout the evening, you will realize that we keep going back to the Bible, and that is on purpose. That's not just coincidental. We believe with all of our heart that the Bible is the source of truth. It is the reference point that we should be living our lives by and comparing every decision and comparing everything that we do every given day to the Bible. Have a blessed and safe night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.